different. We'd like to welcome you who've come today to this beginning of a 10-day insight meditation, Vipassana retreat. We'd like to welcome those of you who've been here for eight days to this beginning of the insight meditation, Vipassana retreat. Soon you'll all be as one. There won't be the differences anymore. So uh, before I start, I'd like to introduce everybody. Okay. Is that, <clears throat> is that better? Yes. Before we start, I'd just like to introduce all of us. This is Michelle McDonald-Smith, Stephen Smith. I'm Carol Wilson. And we'll be teaching a retreat together with Susan O'Brien, who's assisting us. She's um, been here the past few years. If you've been here in past years, you probably recognize her, have spoken with her. And she's been in teacher training both here and in California with Jack Cornfield. She's assisting us on this retreat. And Rebecca Bradshaw, sitting next to her, who's also training in teacher training and will be also assisting on this retreat. Next to Rebecca is Franz Merkel, who will be leading in the afternoon a period of mindful movement, helping us use the body to cultivate mindfulness, a radical notion. And most days he'll be here uh, leading that. Uh, there's a couple of days where he has other commitments and can't be here. So, all six of us are very happy to be here with you, and we hope that, if not now, soon, you'll be happy to be here with us. (laughs) So a retreat is a very wonderful and interesting concept, a retreat from the craziness of our lives, a retreat from the busyness, a retreat into nature, a time of deliberate renunciation in order to really explore, investigate, become reacquainted with our basic goodness. I was walking in the woods today, and um, I got, again, such a strong sense of how being able to retreat in nature is such a strong support for the inner journey, for the inner discovery that we go through on a meditation retreat. And then I ran across this poem of Wendell Berry. You're probably familiar with it. I hadn't read it for a while. It's about how nature supports us. The peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I awake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So when we come to retreat here, I think it's not an escape, but a journey into discovering that we can rest in the peace of the world and be free without it being dependent on having to be in nature, having to be away from the complications of our lives, having to change who we are, having to change circumstances, what we can begin to rediscover and become more trusting in, have more confidence in, is that basic goodness, the basic sense of who we truly are, that we are free when we can touch that natural radiance, the basic goodness, of our true mind. And the tool that we'll be using to come into reacquaintance with our natural radiance here is that of insight meditation, of vipassana, which means seeing clearly, of 
practicing a quality of meeting each moment of our experience with a totality of open-hearted presence, no matter what the experience is. You know, insight meditation, Vipassana is getting mindfulness practice. It's amazing to me over the years that I've been practicing in this country, the shift from 25 years ago to now of how well-known meditation or mindfulness practice is becoming. So for example, 20 years ago, if I was traveling on a plane and somebody asked me what I did and I really told them, I would get weird reactions from um, someone trying to save me to someone who'd been very chatty, just completely shutting up and opening up their book or newspaper and kind of shunning me. And now, almost always, if someone asks me and I say, well, I teach meditation, the response is some kind of interest, some kind of positive comment. Even if they don't have a clue, it's like, oh, well, that must be a really good thing to do. Or that's really helpful. I could use some of that myself. Almost always now. It's quite fascinating. And along with that, though, mindfulness meditation or insight practice can be and is thought of as many different things. You know, And you may have come here, each of you, for many different reasons. And so a meditation retreat can be about just calming down, coming to some quietness of heart and mind. We could use it as a form of stress reduction. We can come on retreat to try to come to a deeper psychological understanding of ourselves, to deal with some specific problem, to live more harmoniously with ourselves, with the world, with more compassion, whatever. But what I think is so important for us to remember, to never lose sight of, is that the overarching purpose, the underpinnings, the reason for this practice is to awaken, to deeply awaken to ourselves, to the world. And all these other things are great, and they happen along with it. But this awakening to our true nature is the reason and the path of this practice. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Meditation is to be aware of what is going on in our bodies, our feelings, our minds, and the world. Each day, 40,000 children die of hunger. The former superpowers still have more than 50,000 nuclear warheads, enough to destroy the Earth many times. Yet the sunrise is beautiful. And the rose that bloomed this morning along the wall is a miracle. Life is both dreadful and wonderful. To practice meditation is to be in touch with both these aspects. So we come to awaken, and even though we choose this form of, really a rather strict form of retreat, of renunciation, a lot of structure. We don't come to escape the world. We come to discover ourselves and find that in discovering ourselves, we do discover the world. I just read an interesting book about hermits, the whole phenomenon of hermits in all different ages, different cultures on this planet. And it was really interesting. The whole sense that one might have superficially that one becomes a hermit because basically one hates people and wants to go as far out in the desert as possible where you never have to see anyone again. And sometimes people think retreats are like that. And then you come and you're in a room constantly in line and in the bathroom with a hundred other people. (laughs) And you find out that's not what it's about at all. And it wasn't what it's about for the true hermits either. I just wanted to share this one story. I loved it about St. Anthony of Egypt. He's one of the first of the desert fathers in the days of the early Christians. Um, And he was the most famous of the desert fathers and in some ways the most inspirational. And this is really a sense, what happened for him is sort of 
maybe a little stronger, but sort of what happens to us on a retreat. We come into solitude and self-discovery and find that it enables us to live so much more authentically in the world, so much more awake, alive, connected. So St. Antony was very wealthy as a young man, but he heard the teachings of Jesus that rich men should give up all their wealth, and he did, and went out into the desert as a hermit, way out, way, way out. And he, um, <clears throat> he finally ended up at a deserted fort on the east bank of the Nile, and he uh, lived alone without seeing a human face for 20 years. He had himself barricaded in, and every six months, friends would bring him food and supplies. And it said sometimes the friends who brought, brought the supplies would hear terrifying shrieks and groans coming from behind the locked doors. And then after 20 years, they couldn't stand it anymore. And they broke down the barricade. <laughs> and they expected to release a wasted and emaciated maniac. That's what they were expecting. But instead, out walked this healthy, sane, and very balanced person who spent the rest of his life helping people. He went back um, to help the persecuted Christians, and people came to him for advice the whole rest of his life, and he just spent the rest of his life with occasional retreats into solitude, helping people, giving advice. A totally sane and balanced person. Okay, so maybe that's an extreme. I don't think we have to go that far. But I really loved the story because it just, in an exaggerated way, shows how taking the time to retreat, to really go inside, to investigate, is the furthest thing from an escape, as those of you who've done retreats before know very well. If you haven't done a retreat before, you find out really quickly that the world comes with us, that how we respond to all the ups and downs that arise in our minds, internally, externally, on this retreat, just the way we respond outside of here. And so in learning how to bring a full, kind-hearted attention to whatever is arising in this moment, we are learning how in the immediacy of our presence to each moment, we can begin to recognize and rest in our basic goodness. Because the, the interesting aspect of how we rediscover and reconnect the natural radiant heart or mind is that it doesn't really matter what's happening. Nothing that's happening can really block our natural peace, our natural radiance. The only thing that hides it from us is the way our hearts and minds react to whatever's happening. You know, not liking it, hating it, trying to change it, leaning into looking for something else all the things that take us away from immediate, total, open-hearted presence here and now. And when we can discover moment to moment, very simple moments, you don't have to have any, you know, blasting apart your mind experience. It can just be a little knee pain. When we learn how, moment to moment to moment, to bring this totality of heart and mind, non-judging, kind, fully present to whatever's happening, then the amazing thing is that anything and everything becomes our gateway, our avenue to recognizing our home again. And ultimately, it's not that one would need a retreat. As I have a good friend who says he goes on retreat to remember that he doesn't need a retreat. <laughs> ultimately, but of course, we get so carried away, we get so reactive, we get so lost in looking for things and trying to change things and trying to make our lives better and trying to control everything, to have it just perfect so we shouldn't, God forbid, suffer, that we forget about full-hearted, open, kind presence. So we're here to practice that. And for people who've been here on the Metta retreat, what's interesting is, as you know, the Metta, the Brahma Vihara is Metta, compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, 
equanimity. That's what we've been practicing for the last eight days together. For those of you who first come, that's what we've been doing here. And it's different in focus from insight practice, where in the taking metta, for example, loving kindness, we're deliberately calling up and cultivating this boundless heart of connectedness, of acceptance, of friendliness, starting to ourselves, all aspects of ourselves, and then to all beings. It's different from Vipassana, where we're not deliberately calling up an experience, but instead cultivating a really focused, yet non-judging, clear-seeing meeting of whatever's happening. Often we'll say that the, the attitude of mindfulness is imbued with metta, that friendliness, that non-judging, that complete connection. And what I've also found very interesting about metta, the, the Brahma-vihara practices, is that even though you're cultivating a deliberate and specific state of heart and mind, what makes those four states so boundless is that so partaking of the same wisdom of our basic goodness that Vipassana leads us into is just the fact of their boundlessness. This is Tulku Ergin, who's a wonder was, he died a couple years ago, a wonderful Tibetan teacher, talking about a moment of love, a moment of metta. He says, in the moment of real love, the empty nature dawns nakedly. Because when the body and speech and mind, as he describes it, are suffused, are overwhelmed with this undiscriminating love of metta, if at that moment one looks inwardly, really clearly, the radiant nature, the pure, empty, basic goodness shines like the sun, unobscured by clouds. And so, just as the insight is a way into the pure, shining radiance of our being, which manifests then as love and compassion, so the cultivation of love and compassion lead us over and over to that moment where the sense of me and other and discrimination falls away. And as Tulku Ergen says, in that moment, the empty nature dawns nakedly. They really are two sides of the same understanding. From the Dalai Lama, he says, um, why do we endeavor to discover the present moment so fully? Because it's the only place that you will know love. This present moment, the only place we will know love, the only place we can know freedom. The only place that we can truly actualize the possibility of living with inner contentment, with deep connectedness, in harmony with ourself, with others, with the world. Only deeply, immediately present here and now. And it doesn't matter what's happening here and now. So that's what we come here for. And on the way, we might have quite a ride. But that's okay. That's how life is, here and away from here. It's quite a ride. And all the ups and downs are part of, necessary parts of, the ride. Nothing to be dismayed at. Nothing to think it's the wrong thing to happen. Remember, The whole show is just to help us bring this immediacy of open heart and focused attention. There's just one more little quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. He's so cute, Thich Nhat Hanh. And now I can't... Oh, here it is. Children understand very well that in each woman, in each man... There is a capacity of waking up, of understanding, and of loving. Some people allow this capacity to develop, and some do not. But everyone has it. 
This capacity of waking up, of being aware of what is going on in our feelings, our bodies, our perceptions, and the world, I call Buddha nature, the capacity of understanding and loving. We must give the baby of the Buddha in us a chance. So it's wonderful that we're all here, that you care enough to cultivate this capacity of waking up, of loving and understanding, and that we can all cultivate this baby Buddha in us. Because it's true, we all have that potential. So we're going to do the refuges and precepts, a formal way of committing our energies to this task of giving the baby Buddha in us a chance, of establishing our motivation through taking the refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha together, and taking the five training rules for conscious conduct, for non-harming behavior, and then we'll have a sitting together, and that will be enough for this first night. So the, it's very important, I feel, in undertaking or continuing, as some of you are, in this really sincere and powerful work that we're doing together to have both a, a clear sense in oneself of one's motivation and conscious commitment because there's times we forget. There's times it's hard. And as well as the conscious commitment to create a a sacred space here together that uh, enhances the sense of safety and fearlessness that allows whatever needs to come up on this retreat to come up, knowing that this is a safe place. So to establish uh, a sense of motivation I find this taking together of the three refuges a very powerful way to do it. As you know, the three refuges or the triple gem are taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So thinking for a moment of what refuge, what that word refuge actually means. And in a place where one can go for protection, for safety, somewhere that's trustworthy, that you can rest. And in taking refuge in these three gems, it's a way of recognizing that, in a way, this is where we can always trust. Any person or any situation in life is bound to change. Our bodies are bound to change. Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, I think of them really as three different reflections of our basic goodness, three different reflections of a radiant heart, radiant mind, of freedom. The Buddha, of course, there was the living Buddha, but it really symbolizing to us, again, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, the baby Buddha in each of us, that capacity to wake up, to love, to understand, a capacity to live an authentic life with contentment and caring for ourselves and all beings. The potential for freedom, it's our birthright as human beings. Taking refuge in the Buddha. The Dharma is, means a lot of things. Most basic meaning is truth the truth of how things are, the laws of the universe, can also mean the doctrine the Buddha's teaching in a classical way. For me, when I take refuge in the Dharma, it means, when I think of it, I'm usually having a hard time, right? And taking refuge in the Dharma means I can open into and trust this moment completely because it is only in the truth of this moment that freedom can be found. So trust in the Dharma and taking refuge in the Sangha. As you know, Sangha means community. 
And classically, we take refuge in the Sangha of awakened beings, the nuns and monks, past and present, who have walked on this path, who have preserved it for us, who serve as lights of inspiration. And also, of course, each other. The Sangha of practicing together with other dedicated and sincere people is such a wonderful gift on this planet, you know? It is really, in some areas, so rare. And when, in the first few days, inevitably, little jostlings come up, you know, and there's, if you've been here for, ten, for eight days, there's bound to be some little reactivity, some little comparing. It always goes on. If you're just new, the same. There's bound to be some little reactivity, some comparing. Notice it, grist for the mill, but see if you can touch this much deeper refuge of sangha together. You know, don't get lost in the superficial reactivities of our minds, but come into the deeper motivation. And as always happens at the end of a retreat, we so appreciate the power of being here together with one another. So we want to do these three refuges together, and then take the precepts. Yeah. I know. Pass up. The of our hearts and minds, the foundation of our meditation practice, is to make a commitment together to conscious conduct. A friend of mine calls it the ethics of the sacred. Uh, a commitment not to speak or act consciously in a way that's harmful to other beings. Not out of fear, but out of respect for ourselves, out of respect for all life. As our teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, used to say that acting through the precepts is a way of actualizing our oneness with all beings. So these five training rules are pretty basic. You know what they are, and if you've been here, you've already taken them, but it's nice to recommit to these training rules, which are not to kill or harm living beings, not just each other, hopefully, but all living beings. Really seeing that even the black flies, and it's a challenge at times, that the heart that crushes life, you know, is filled with aversion and hatred in that moment. And it not only harms life, it harms us. So to really be aware of our actions, our connection with all life. Second one is not to take what is not freely given. Really, it's an actualization of seeing that we're enough just as we are, that 17th cookie, that you know, <laughs> place you have to have at lunch that somebody else is sitting in, that nice shampoo somebody left in the bathroom. We don't need that. <laughs> and just to let things be as they are. It's not only not stealing, but not taking what isn't freely offered. And that can let us feel such a sense of inner sufficiency rather than acting out of this sense of, I'm not enough, I need this, I need that. It also gives such a sense of safety here. It's one of the few places, you know, where I feel if you just drop something really valuable on the floor, someone would pick it up, pin it on the bulletin board, and say, whose is this? It's a wonderful way to live. The third precept is, in daily life, not to harm ourselves or others with our sexuality, not to use our sexuality in a way that intrudes in others' relationships, that's abusive or exploitative, that hurts others or ourselves. That's an important one to remember. Here, we take the precept to refrain from sexuality altogether, um, to be celibate for the period of the retreat, as a way of staying in our own energy field, in the same way that we're not communicating, that we're in silence, which is the fourth one, 
we're also not engaging in sexual activity. Fourth precept, which is right speech, not to use speech that's dishonest, that's harsh, that's divisive. You know, the obvious things, not to use speech to hurt others or ourselves. And really seeing that when we say something untrue or harsh, as soon as it's out, you know, you can feel in yourself that it hurts ourselves as well as the other. You really start to see, when you pay attention to our speech and actions, that there isn't a, isn't a division between us. Here, of course, the retreat is in noble silence, except for necessary communication around your job, and of course in the group interviews and in the private interviews, please talk. But um, as far as other communication with each other, please refrain from it. Also, not writing notes to one another. You don't need to look at each other and try and pull someone in. It's a really rare opportunity to just be with yourself. So please use that. And the fifth precept is not to take drugs, intoxicants, that cloud the mind, the heart, that cause us to act and speak in heedless ways. And for the retreat here, we agree not to take any kind of drinking, recreational drugs, anything that's going to cloud our mind. Of course, if you're on prescription medication, anything you need for your health, please take it. So these are the five precepts. Hopefully I can remember them. Oh, would you give me that one? There's one behind. I think I know them, but just for my blankie. Okay. So again, these precepts are not like eternal vows. It's rules of training. In Asia, we take them every day. So it's to really help us pay attention to our speech and actions, um, rather than thinking from now on you have to be perfect. But we're stating an intention to act from non-harming, to give each other the gift of fearlessness. It's a wonderful way to create Sangha together. So, again, I'll chant. Panati Pata, Vedamani, Sikapadang, Samadhiyami, Adinadana, Vedamani, Sikapadang, Samadhiyami, Apramacharya, Vedamani, Sikapadang, Samadhiyami, Musawada, Vedamani, Sikapadang, Samadhiyami, Suramiraya, Majapamadatana, Vedamani, Sikapadang, Samadhiyami, Idamesilang, Magapalanyanasa, Pachayo, Hotu. So thank you. We now consider we're entering into the beginning of our retreat together. If you'd like to take a moment to stretch, you want to stand up, and then we'll have a short sitting. As you uh, settle into your body, begin by paying attention to body posture. If you're new at meditation, it may take some experimentation in the first few sittings and perhaps even some questions with one of the teachers to help you find a posture or alternate postures 
that most support your sitting practice? For now, the most important quality to hold in the body is relaxation. Because this mirrors a really important part of the mind in cultivating the quality of relaxed awareness. The degree to which the lower body feels firmly anchored on your pillow, bench, chair, allows for the health and fluidity of the upper part of the body, particularly the back, the spine, which should feel supple, fluid, firmly supported below, but at ease in the upper part. The health of the spine, of course, has to do with the general sense of ease of the whole body, the brain, blood flow, the breathing. In the beginning, you may find that extra support under the legs or knees raising or lowering the height of your buttocks will help feel that lower anchor and the more fluid upper part of the body. Sometimes if you raise your shoulders, pull them back and let them drop, as well as just tuck your chin in slightly, has the effect of aligning the spine in a healthy way. Eyes generally are softly closed, hands uh, folded on your lap or resting on your knees, thighs. And although at times in the beginning you may take a few deeper breaths, the way of following it with awareness and filling the body with awareness, aside from that, we let the breath breathe itself without any direction, control, forcing. Just the natural breathing, even though at times, because of physical or mental phenomena, it may affect the breath. Maybe shorter, shallow. Other times, very long and deep, almost imperceptible. The practice is really in developing quality of awareness letting the breath be natural. Now as we sit, let's start with this awareness of sitting. Feeling the beam of attention surround the body. Feeling the contours and the form of sitting. The more relaxed the mind, the more the sense of the awareness arising from the body, not from the brain. And that combination of the body that's relaxed and alert creates that ease of attention that we're drawing forth in awareness. Notice how the sensations come forward of their own nature and are more clearly noticeable as we let go thoughts about these sensations or evaluations. Just let the thoughts, associations, images come and go 
like the sensations themselves. Feel how the body as an anchor helps to firmly ground attention in the moment. The more we relax into a feeling awareness of these sensations, without thinking about them, without any sense of force, And from this initial groundedness of mindfulness of body, very easily shift the awareness from the field of body sensations to the field of sounds. as with the body sensations, takes no effort to move toward any specific sounds, rather the relaxed awareness of the whole field of silence and the sounds that appear out of the silence. Inner sounds, external sounds, sound of my voice, nature sounds. As with the body, discern the difference between our evaluation, associations, and thoughts around the sounds and the pure sound vibrations themselves. pervasive, the awareness fills the space out of which sound vibrations appear and disappear. More alert, attuned to the sound vibrations. of awareness that is receptive, open, soft, and then bring this quality of open receptivity and the groundedness from the awareness of body Bring these qualities together and begin to notice the nature of each breath, the experiential, feeling nature of each breath cycle.
from an, an initial broad spectrum awareness of the breath, begin to locate in the body where your focused attention feels most connected and grounded. Usually that is deep in the abdomen where you feel a rising or extension with inhalation and a relaxing, falling sensation with exhalation. Or it's at the nostrils where anchored attention experiences the impact of the inhalation of air on the nostrils and similar impact with the exhalation in the area of the nostrils or upper lip. And here with ease, just to, to anchor in the awareness of this flow of sensation at the nostril, or if you find your sense of connection more clearly in the abdomen. Feel the whole experience from the beginning to the end of each in-breath, a rising movement. And the entire experience with the out-breath at the nostrils or the falling relaxation sensations in the abdomen. a few more minutes use just the effort necessary to connect with your primary anchor of the breath for one rising movement only and then just the energy required to feel the falling movement or to feel the flow of sensations with the in-out breathing at the nostrils.
that we've been established in the the triple gem refuges. We've been established in the in the sila practice, non-harming, and now established in your your meditation practice of mindfulness, the anchor of the breath and the supporting anchors of body sounds. But for those of you who are new, it's really all you need uh, for between now and the next instruction at 8.15 tomorrow morning. Uh, each morning we add a little more of the instruction, so it's a gradual extension of mindfulness till mindfulness uh, covers every domain of experience. We'll also be teaching adding the walking mindfulness walking meditation tomorrow morning. For those who have just arrived, it's really a a gift to walk into this uh, metta field that's been established. It will really help you kind of settle in, tune in, uh, and calm the mind just by feeling the foundation that's been set up here for eight powerful days of practice. So take a good rest tonight. Be, be mindful that that 50 people already here, uh, you know, are, have been practicing. So do your best to uh, to be sensitive, caring around the sounds that you make uh, this first this first night and day of practice. We're all really uh, grateful to be here and serving you in. Uh, the Dharma practice for this next 10 days. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.